Everything in my beer can hand is sad. The dirt is even sad under my fingernails, and this hand is like the hand of a machine, and yet it is not. It curves itself completely, an effort containing magic around the beer can, and a movement the same as roots. Pounding a gladiola up into the sun of air, and the beer goes into me. So I finally did it, and I finally took the leap, and it was kind of like breaking the seal on an old bottle of whiskey that you've had sitting on your shelf for several years, really. But I finally cracked the uh, seal of Bukowski, and for whatever reason, I kind of built it up in my head, you know. I thought, what's the deal with this guy? Back when I was... Working at Tower Books, that was 95. He had just died in 94. Uh, March of 90. Was it March of 94? Yeah, I think. Let's say here. Uh, yeah, March 9th of 94. He died in San Pedro, the northernmost city. Uh, in the area where you can take uh, the ferry to Catalina at the age of 73. Shortly after completing his last novel, Pulp, which was on grand display at uh, Tower Books, which had a nice red cover and had a pulpy, a pulpy, uh, it was not, uh, was it hard? No, it wasn't a hardback. It was a thick, pulpy cover. And it was all red. I had, I think, I had some kind of, uh, kind of a black trim in, uh, around the interior borders, and it just said pulp on it. I thought, well, that's definitely pulpish, and it was a pulp thing. And I, th- but I thought at the time it was kind of capitalizing on the whole pulp fiction thing, but it wasn't. It was just timely. It just kind of came out. But I thought, okay, well, this guy Bukowski, what's he all about? I don't know. Maybe I'll get around to him someday. Because there was talk, you know, there's always talk. People that people that worked at the bookstore, they all had their they all had their take on it, you know, on this book or that book. This book would come out, that book would come out. We had Anne Rice come through. She had a book signing at our at our uh bookstore. It was uh there's a whole entourage that followed her in. It was very kind of gothic, and uh, I think I was off that day. I missed it, but I'd heard about it. Um, and one of my managers, this guy, what was his name Scott? I think his name was. I want to say his name was Scott. He was reed thin, but an alcoholic. He would, uh, he would just knock back like a six pack of beer on his break. And I don't know where. I mean, this guy probably weighed 130 pounds, and he was probably five nine. Maybe maybe five ten, and uh, I turned him on to. Uh, I told him about Bigfoot Ale, this Sierra Nevada brew that only came out like in uh, winter, like in February. It was a limited, limited thing, you know. Every winter, I would say end of March or beginning of February, or uh, end of January, beginning of February, be, maybe end of March. I don't know. And I, one day he had uh, he had taken a six pack of this on break, and he came back and he said, "Man, 
that was like getting hit in the back of the head with a two by four. He wasn't ready for that. Cause it was like, that was like a, that was ridiculous. Like most beer, I think it was like what, five, 6%, 7%. This, but Bigfoot ale was something in the range of like 12, 12.8, something like that. It was a barley wine, um, or barley wine. I mean, it was, it was like drinking a thin syrup. Um, you'd had to, you, you had to really want to drink it, you know? And, uh, man, so he put it in his shuffle, he put it in his rotation and, uh, and uh he could <laughs> he could barely see straight but but he was one of these guys that just was uh like super smart like probably too smart for his own good he was too smart to be managing this bookstore you know he had glasses and a conservative haircut and he always wore some kind of checkered button up nondescript checkered button up you know and uh but um uh, uh i remember we went out drinking, he and I, one night, and um, we ended up crashing because I was staying on my folks' uh, fold-out at the time. I was 24. This is right before I took off for Europe. And um, my uh, my girlfriend at the time, who I went with, she was upstairs. I think I had climbed in bed, in bed with her, and Scott took the fold-out. My dad would always have a habit of coming down the stairs just in his hands, you know, and that was a sight to behold, and he didn't realize probably that that was going to happen, and he, uh, he kind of gathered his shit and bounced before I even woke up, because I was, I was sleeping one off anyway, so, but these guys at the store, they all had, uh, they all had an angle on some writing, this or that, and, uh, but Bukowski was timely, just kind of he was there, I don't know, people knew about him, um, but it was an underground thing, it was kind of, you know, people didn't, I don't, at, at this point, I, you know, I was maybe misled into th- thinking that scholars kind of picked this guy apart, and at the time, they probably did, uh, which was fascinating, because he didn't write for the scholars, I think, um, I kind of, you know, in for a penny, in for a pound. So I, I broke the seal on my whole Bukowski thing, and I, I, I got a book. I got two books. I got went to the library. I got two books. I got one by Joan Didion called uh, A Book of Common Prayer, which was I think it was one of her, I think it's her highest selling fiction novel that she had come out with. And then I got this book was it was a compilation of um, stories and uh, poems by Bukowski which I think it was a, I think it was a maybe a posthumous compilation but it's called On Drinking I showed it to my lady and she said so I I wanted to see where which direction she was I I I said I got you I got you a book I got you another book cuz I previously had checked out this uh it was a graphic novel written by um the stories were written by Anthony Bourdain, but the artwork was obviously um, by a more, you know, somebody, uh, I don't even know who did the, the art itself, but it was uh, pretty good reading. Anyway, she she latched onto that and really enjoyed it. And uh, But between these two, see, I wanted to test her. I want to see which direction she was going to go because, you know, she um, she tries to temper her enthusiasm with 
with drinking, but she also likes, uh, she's also uh, very, very Christian, very biblical. So I was going to, I was just going to see, okay, which, which way, which direction, which, which path seemed more appealing when I pulled out each book. One said the Book of Common Prayer, something that any, any good Christian would gravitate towards, right? Although it had nothing to do with the Bible. And then the book On Drinking by Charles Bukowski. And she naturally, uh, well, she picked On Drinking. And, and it goes right away. Well, so I, I got that book. I let her kind of start it. And uh, I started listening to um, the book Women, written by Bukowski uh, in 78. And it was... Uh, they're easy to find. If you go to YouTube, you can find a lot of books on tape there. So I've been listening to that since like last Friday. I'll say last Friday. Yeah, I'm about halfway through it. And it's just... Um, drinking is definitely a prevalent theme with this guy. And so any anybody kind of delves into the subject of Bukowski or the writing of Bukowski or the... Mm, that realm shouldn't be shouldn't be surprised. I mean, it's kind of a intrinsic. It's kind of part of the territory with him. So you got to be ready. And I was, I knew I I kind of knew. You know, you, this is a guy that. Um, so among the book and then the audio book, the combination of the two, I also after work would watch documentaries and interviews with him and boy this is a guy that just he didn't want to have anything to do with anybody the further away I am from people the better is basically his his thing and he's to me um and I'm not gonna this isn't about analysis it's just about just kind of I don't know. Just telling you like it. I mean, he tells it like it is. That's probably his appeal because um, I think the, you know, he sold a lot of books right out the gate, but he didn't publish anything until he was, I, I believe he was like 50 or 51. Um, his story is really, it's kind of, I don't know. It's heartbreaking in a way. And I think that's, I think that's why, I don't know, I, that, I think that's his appeal. I think when you're done, because I'm halfway through the book of women, this book, women, which is just really, it's just kind of one, one entanglement, one situation after another. It's just kind of this, uh, based on this guy who was who was exa- it, this is Charles Bukowski but he's uh but in the book he's his alter ego Henry Chinaski and uh without belaboring this cuz I know this has gone I mean people have talked about this you know ad nauseum f- over the years since well god since probably the 70s um when he first published his book, but they're all very straightforward. Every book that you probably get from this guy is just a fastball down the middle. It's a fastball down the middle. There's no finesse. There's no 
breaking ball, there's no curveball, there's no slider, there's no knuckleball. You know what you're gonna get. And and he delivers. And I but I don't think it's with intention because I don't think he's a he's not a he's a he's a he's a writer of uh he's a he's a journeyman writer. So his 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 MO is no matter what, you got to write every day, no matter what. So you can sit down and you just start plugging away. And what he did, what well, what he did is, um, well, let me back up. So it started back basically like, I'll read like the first story of this book is he, uh, this was uh, dated uh, March 25th, 1961. What bothers me is when I read about the old Paris groups, I mean, and by that, I think he's probably talking about the lost generation. He's talking about uh, guys like Hemingway and uh, Gertrude Stein and those people that hung out at like Shakespeare and Company, the book, the booksellers in Paris um, that were run by people that really backed kind of like the fringe element of writers back in those days, back in the 20s, right? Or somebody who knew somebody in the old days. They did it then to the names of old. And now I think Hemingway is writing a book about it now. But in spite of it all, I can't buy it. I can't stand writers or editors or anybody who wants to talk art. For three years, I lived in a Skid Row hotel before my hemorrhage and got drunk every night with an ex-con. The hotel maid, an Indian, a gal who looked like she wore a wig but didn't, and three or four drifters. Nobody knew... Shostakovich from Shelley Winters and we didn't give a damn the main thing was sending runners out for liquor when we ran dry so what's he what he's saying is he's he's he is that journeyman guy he's a guy that um like people people that read him and read him right away are were were by the sound of it blue collar guys okay because you you like his first book, Post Office, is about that. About a guy who works at the post office. His second book, Factotum, is more. It's just. It's this direct approach. Just this straight. There's no. Again, there's no flowery language. There's no. Uh, there's no clever devices. There's no literary devices. There's no. Uh, yeah, mm, there's no artistic ambiguity, you know, which is a. I think a favorite of some really uh, smoke-blowing writers that just kind of are a bit of, uh, you know, a bit pretentious. And this guy is not pretentious. He's, there's no pretense here. This is what it is. That's why I say he's a fastball down the middle. So we start low on the line with our worst runner. And if he failed, you must understand, most of the time there, there was little or, little or no money. We'd go a little deeper with our next best man. I guess it's bragging, but I was top dog. And when the last one staggered through the door, pale and shamed, Bukowski would rise with an invective, don his ragged cloak and stroll with anger and assurance into the night. Down to Dick's liquor store, and I conned him and forced him and squeezed him until he was dizzy. I would walk in in big anger, not beggary, and ask for what I wanted. Dick never knew whether I had any money or not. Sometimes I fooled him and had money, but most of the time I didn't. But anyhow, anyhow, he'd slap the bottles in front of me. 
bag them, and then I'd pick them up with an angry, put them on my tab. And then you'd start the old dance. But Jesus, you owe me such and such already, and you haven't paid anything off in a month. And, and then came the act of art. All in caps. I already had the bottles in my hand. It would be nothing to walk out, but I'd slap them down again in front of him, ripping them out of the bag and shoving them toward him, saying, Here! You want these things? I'll take my goddamn business somewhere else. <laughs> no, no, he'd say, take them all. It's all right. And then he'd get out that sad slip of paper and add on to the total. Let me see that, I'd demand. And then I'd say, for Christ's sake, I don't know you this much. What's this item here? All this was to make him believe that I was going to pay someday. And then he'd try to con me back. You're a gentleman. You're not like the others. I trust you. He finally got sick and sold his business, and when the next one came in, I started a new tab. And what happened? At 8 o'clock one Sunday morning, 8 o'clock, god damn it, there was a knock on the door, and I opened it, and there stood an editor. Ah, I'm so-and-so, editor of so-and-so. We got your short story and thought it was most unusual. We're going to use it in our spring number. Well, come on in, I had to say, but don't stumble over the bottles. And then I sat there while he took, while he told me about his wife, who thought a lot of him about his, and about his short story that had once been published in the Atlantic Monthly, and you know how they talk on. He finally left, and a month or so later, the hall phone rang, and somebody wanted Bukowski, and this time it was a woman's voice. Mr. Bukowski, we think you have a very unusual short story, and the group was discussing it the other night. But we think it has one weakness, and we thought... We might want to correct the weakness. It was this. Why did the central character begin to drink in the first place? I said, forget the whole thing and send the story back, and I hung up. When I walked back in, the Indian looked up over his drink and asked, who was it? I said, nobody, which was the most accurate answer I could give. <laughs> I mean, that's like the essence of this guy, you know? Everything started off with a drink, and in, and in the book Women... You know, that was, that was like, uh, it was as ubiquitous as the paper that it was printed on, you know? So, you just kind of, it's not a, dep it, I, I feel, you know, you feel like a, a sense of pity for the guy, even though he's like this irascible, irredeemable, kind of lout, kind of guy that really is more of a reactionary than anything in my opinion I think he just reacts to most things he doesn't seek out like I talked about it this briefly in the last episode of the podcast but he was like there's a misogynistic tone to this guy okay and but the misogyny comes kind of in the form of a lack of uh, or or a willful ignorance because early on in the book of women he's basically instructed how to give a woman oral pleasure so up to this point you know this was well the book came out in 78 i think he probably wrote it probably in 76 so at that time he was probably 55 56 and had never known how to pleasure a woman that way so but if you kind of you know Take a step back and look where this guy came from. And this is it. Born in Andernach, Germany, 1920. German mother, father with American army. 
Pasadena-born, but of German parentage. There is some evidence that I was born or at least conceived out of wedlock, but I am not sure. American, at age of two, so they moved to, uh, so born in Germany, moved to America at age of two. Some year or so in Washington, D.C., but then on to Los Angeles. So he's a quintessential, he's definitely a quintessential Los Angeline. He's L.A., true and true like you you get you see this guy you could almost kind of feel like the you almost feel as drunk as he does on a Sunday afternoon when you know that sun's kind of like breaking through a the side of your you know illuminating the side of your stucco 1930s little bungalow there and it's kind of in a ratty little kind of side street that's been forgotten about somewhere near Sepulveda or Santa Monica Boulevard, you know. So he says, uh, between the imbecile savagery of my father, the disinterestedness of my mother, and the sweet hatred of my playmates, things were pretty hot all around. They got hotter when I was in my 13th years on. I broke out not with acne, but with these huge boils in my eyes, neck, back, face. I'd ride the streetcar to the hospital, the charity ward. The old man was not working, and they they drill me with the electric needle, which is a kind of a wood drill that they stick into people. Stayed out of school a year. Went to L.A. City College a couple years, journalism. Tuition fee was $2, but the old man said he couldn't afford to send me anymore. I went to work in the railroad yards, scrubbing the sides of trains with oakite. I drank and gambled at night. Had a small room above a bar on Temple Street in the Filipino district. I gambled at night with the aircraft workers and pimps and etc. My place got to be known, and every night it was packed. It was hell getting my sleep. One night I hit big, big for me, two or three hundred. I knew they'd be back. Got in a fight, broke a mirror and a couple of chairs, but held on to the money and early in the morning caught a bus for New Orleans. Some young pal on there made a play for me and I let her off at Fort Worth but got as far as Dallas and swung back. Wasted some time there and made New Orleans. Roomed across from the Gangplank Cafe and began writing. Short stories. Drank the money up. Went to work in a comic book house. And soon moved on. Miami Beach, Atlanta... New York, St. Louis, Philly, Frisco, L.A. again, New Orleans again, then Philly again, then Frisco again, L.A. again, around and around, a couple nights in East Kansas City, Chicago. I stopped writing. I concentrated on drinking. My longest days were in Philly. I would get up early in the morning and go to a bar there, and I would close that bar at night. How I made it, I don't know. Then finally back to L.A. in a wild shack job of seven years drinking ended up in same charity hospital this time not with boils but with my stomach torn open finally with rot gut and agony eight pints of blood and seven pints of glucose transfused in without a stop my whore came to see me and she was drunk my old man was with her the old man gave me a lot of lip and the whore was nasty too and i told the old man just one more word out of you and I'm going to yank this needle out of my arm. Climb off this deathbed and whip your ass. They, they left. I came out of there white and old in love with sunlight. Told never to drink again or death would be mine. 
I found among changes in myself that my memory, which was once pretty good, was now bad. Some brain damage, no doubt. They let me lay there a couple of days in the charity ward when my papers got lost. The papers called for immediate transfusions and I was out of blood. Listen to hammers against my brain. Anyhow, I got on a mail truck and drove it around and delivered letters and drank lightly, experimentally. And then one night I sat down and began writing poetry. What a hell of a thing. Where to send this stuff? Well, I took a shot. There was a magazine called Harlequin. And I was a fucking clown. And it was out in some small town in Texas. And maybe they wouldn't know bad stuff when they saw it. So there was a gal editor there. And the poor dear went wild. Special edition. Letters followed. The letters got warm. The letters got hot. Next thing I knew, the gal editor was in Los Angeles. Next thing I knew, we were in Las Vegas for marriage. Next thing I knew, I was walking in a small Texas town with the local hicks glaring at me. The gal had money. I didn't know she had money. Or her folks had money. We went back to L.A. and I went back to work somewhere. The marriage didn't work. It took three years for her to find out that I was not what she had thought I was supposed to be. I was antisocial, coarse, a drunkard, didn't go to church, Played horses, cursed when intoxicated, didn't like to go anywhere, shaved carelessly, didn't care for her paintings or her relatives, sometimes stayed in bed two or three days running, etc., etc. Very little more. I went back to my whore who had once been such a cruel and beautiful woman and who was no longer beautiful as such, but who had magically become a warm and real person. But she could not stop drinking. She drank more than I and she died. There's not much left now. I drink mostly alone and discourage company. People seem to be talking about things that don't count. They are too eager or too vicious or too obvious. So there you go. That's him. You know, he just... You know, that's true. That's real shit. Like, in whatever context this is supposed to be, like, that really is him. You know, that opening line in the intro was a poem he wrote called Brewed and Filled By. Everything in my beer can hand is sad. The dirt is even sad under my fingernails. And this hand is like the hand of a machine, and yet it is not. It curves itself completely in effort, containing magic around the beer can and the movement the same as roots pounding a gladiola up into the sun of air and the beer goes into me that's him that's this guy that's Bukowski that's and then and then as art imitates life then life turns around and imitates art so he spends most of the book women just kind of blowing through woman after woman and just ruining these well again it's more reactionary because at this point in his life when the book comes out he's like 58 years old he's 58 years old and he's still kind of by all accounts he's uh he's pretty active but I think the attraction probably is the authenticity that he's, he is who he is, he is who he says he is, or he is who he writes about. Um, it's a pretty thin veil of, uh, you know, difference between 
this guy Chinaski and this guy Bukowski. It's basically the same thing. What I, I you know, and I kind of like, uh, without, uh, again, without the over-interpretiveness of it all, without over-interpretation, because that's what he's, that's what he's, again, not, uh, this is not about um, some surprise ending or some metaphor or some kind of, you know, this is a guy that lives in Skid Row. He's a Skid Row guy. He's a guy that goes to the track. He's a guy that drinks when he wakes up, you know? He's a guy that talks shit about other poets because they don't they don't work, they don't represent anybody or anything and they have less credibility because they're supported by their old lady or their their parents or their they don't they don't you know, he didn't you know, he had a he had a pretty good uh self-awareness. And his self-awareness was that he was a dirtbag. So he wrote about dirtbags. He wrote about the people on Skid Row, and uh, he wrote about the people at the track, and uh, he wrote about uh, just these characters, you know? But another part of it was the anti-culture of L.A., which I've talked about before, too. The fact that there's this huge metropolitan city that has this heritage and this history and these people and these museums and these theaters and these districts and Sunset Strip and the Chateau Marmont and Santa Monica Boulevard and Hollywood Vine and uh, North Hollywood and all the, you know, the clubs and the, just the history of it all and the movies that were made there and the movies are, that are about there and the people that live there and the acts that came out of there. But at the same time, there's just this kind of this thin kind of one dimensional thing going on there. And, uh, so all these academics and these scholars that kind of like pour over this text, these words and these stories and, these poems and stuff and they're looking for some kind of grandiose metaphor about this that is 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 the same as you know scratching the fucking scabs on the foot of a fucking hobo at the santa fe station it's just something that you're kind of bewildered by and you can't make you know you can't he just he just he just uses it. He just uses it as a backdrop for the nothingness that's there. He's talking about, well, like in chapter, uh, 19, he's, uh, he ends up in Catalina with some lady named Didi who he's in every one of the, every, every one of these interactions with these women is just a tra it's a tragedy. And then the common thread is this woman, Lydia, who's based on um, his real life girlfriend for uh, he had a he had a, you know, one of those kind of toxic relationships that just kind of 
kind of had this weird zigzag pattern through the flat line of of his existence <laughs> you know kind of crossing up and down with these peaks and valleys i think her real name was her real name Re- regina regina king i think that's her name i think that was the name of the girl in the the doc but uh but in the book she's lydia and she drives of all things she drives a, a volkswagen thing he says it looks like a tank it's so funny and he drives he calls it the blue volks so he's obviously got like a a beetle or a bug that he drives around town that's go that goes through its paces you know and it's it's again it's like you know, you wanna you wanna make this something to something more than it is, but it really it just comes across as just uh the this guy that seems to be he just wants to be left alone, I think. I think he just wants like I say, he he's well by this point, you know, in his life, in Bukowski's life, he's kinda hit his stride because basically the way it worked out was after he'd almost died in this hospital he had a stomach hemorrhage from just drinking and drinking and drinking because he was just mercilessly just you know this this acne that he had and this kind of shy reticent personality that just kind of, like the confidence was drained from him kind of the minute he broke out with this with with this acne and uh which is natural i mean you know, we're also surface level, you know, that's, that's the, you know, that's probably if, if there was ever a metaphor for any of this stuff, it's like <sighs> LA being such a one dimensional kind of visual aesthetic town where everything is about how everything looks, you know, you got all these producers driving around in these leased cars, these rented cars, you know, all these rappers, these musicians and these guys, these actors and these people that are trying they're putting up a show and by that they're driving these cars they can't afford to make it look like they're successful right it's the old you know it's the timeless old story but you got this guy that's just kind of hustling around just kind of kind of lumping around in his little blue volks you know this little this little beetle that uh you know, he's at one point in in, in like chapter 69, 70, 72, there's a rattan chair sticking through the windshield of it that he's 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 had to muscle into his car to move. And it's just uh, <laughs> it's just a wreck and he's a wreck and he's just it's, you know, each chapter he's he's drinking and fucking and fucking and drinking. And but there's no. uh Again, he's not, he's not, he's not seeking it out. He's just reacting to it. All this guy wants to do is write. He just wants to sit in front of his typewriter. He's got two six packs of beer and a bottle of wine. And, uh, he starts at exactly 618, according to him, because that's when his, his shift started at the post office when he used to work at the post office. So 6.18 p.m. he'd go to work, which is just the saddest time of day to go to work for any... I mean, when everybody's going home and looking forward to, you know, being done with the day and winding down and maybe having a drink or a smoke or seeing their family or their whatever, 
he's going the other way. I mean, it, that's always been sad. That's to me. I, that's always been a sad situation. Is starting that late in the day when everyone's winding down. You got to wind up. I mean, I used to work at the Time Standard up in Eureka. I'd go to work at night, do the night shift. Just a drag, man. So, his deal was, you know, why would anybody get up at eight a.m. Shit, shower, shave, get in a car to drive to a job that you hate and makes that that you know you're only there to make someone else wealthy. He never got that. He never understood that. So, he spent he spent. Well, it seems like it's mm, a good decade or so after he got out of the hospital. He got out of the hospital. They said, "Don't drink again." Don't ever drink again. Well, it took him about 10 days for that to wear off, and he started drinking again. And he just, I mean, that's, it's phenomenal. It's phenomenal. Dude, just, you know, there's probably trace amounts of embellishment, but it's not too far off from the actual scenario of this guy. Just boozing. And writing and boozing and writing and boozing and writing. But he went on the road. He just didn't have anything else to do. So he just kind of hopped on a... He just kind of became like this... Uh, uh, well, I don't know. Kind of a less... Uh, less beatific Jack Kerouac type. That just would hop on a bus to end up in a town like St. Louis. Or New Orleans or Miami. And just to get... You know, just to work a job and just, you know, just, I don't know, inadvertently kind of enmesh, enmeshing himself in this kind of subculture that he, that he writes about. And, and I think unwittingly he did this with, for research that he didn't even realize he was doing. So it became, I mean, you are your environment. And this is what this guy wrote about. And he's, he's all about just, uh, you know, just sweaty wife beater tank top t-shirts and you know cheap button up short sleeve you know shirts and uh, Heineken beer and uh, just disarray but just wanting to ultimately be left alone just the you know, he at this point, and and obviously, uh, the you know the banality of of existence just was a th- common theme that just ran rampant <clears throat> in his life, because his dad was just, just this abusive. He doesn't, you know, there isn't. There may be more and a more in depth look into his background in other books, but what I've found so far is that there was very little said about his father other than that he was so demonstrative and abusive, but, but in the short stories, what he had made mention of, and even in the documentaries and biographies, he, uh, you know, he went back to the house he was raised in and he went into the bathroom where he would receive a whooping for having to, after after have after having had to mow the lawn, his dad would go out and look for stray blades of grass that were higher than others, which is inevitably going to happen, and use that as an excuse to beat his son. 
And so he'd get the strap out and he'd take him in this bathroom. His mom wouldn't, his mom would probably be drunk and just submissive and uh, powerless in any way to protect her own son. So he would get beaten, God, for, you know, initially be 10 lashes, 12 lashes, 14 lashes. Until he got older, until he got to be 10 or 11. I mean, this is like seven, eight years old. He's going out, he's mowing the lawn, and he's getting beaten. So by the time he was 12, he's, you know, he, you know, you get beaten that much, you know, and you're, you're, you're making the, you know, you're, you're, you're screaming in pain and you're screaming in pain. And then as they just kind of consistently kept happening and as he got older, he got to a point where he was about four or five years into it. He just stopped making a noise altogether. And that's what kind of freaked his dad out and made him stop. So, so that kind of, uh, at one point in the documentary, he even said, you know, that's where I learned to write. My dad taught me how to write because he got a reaction out of it when he, when he, you know, silence is a powerful thing. And when you're whooping somebody and they're not making a word, making a noise, making a peep, that's a little disconcerting. So he's not stupid and he's not simple. But he's kind of like, you know, there's something else there that that people latched on to. You know, there's a, maybe a more, you know, uh, percentage of these readers that have this morbid fascination with just that life, that subterranean kind of skid row, kind of these dregs of humanity that are smoking cigarette butts and, uh, you know, hanging out in bus stations and racetracks and so forth but yeah he just kind of wandered aimlessly for for years and years until he finally at one point he just kind of gave it up he just kind of said fuck it and that was probably late 30s and he took a job at the post office and worked there for 11 years in LA and that was uh that was just the typification. It typified his theory of the banality of existence, that you clock into a job that you don't care about. And um, you kind of just start winding the clock out. But something in him, I don't know, he he got lucky and he, he ran into a guy that uh, he, he started sending, he started kind of, gaining a little following in a, a, a publication. He was writing a column for uh, this, um, this, little, this little magazine. And the column was uh, Notes of a Dirty Old Man. Of course, by this point, he's 49, 50 years old, right? And it caught the eye of this guy that ran Black Sparrow Press. And uh, so one thing led to another, and he... He was offered a situation where, of course, this was 19... At this point, it was 1970. He was 50 years old. And uh, just ravaged with drink. But, you know, you can get into a groove even as a drinker, you know? I mean, you can... Like anything, your body can adapt, and it becomes kind of almost dependent on it now. So... 
So he uh, kind of basically found this, mm, I don't know what you want to call I mean, he was just a publisher, but he was also a benefactor and kind of this, I don't know, like this, I don't know, this angel of mercy that offered him $100 a month and 25% of whatever he sold if he had quit his job and started writing full-time. So he'd seen something in this guy. And it was so it was interesting that he decided, you know what, fuck it. I got nothing to lose. And it's been well documented. This is not any kind of revelatory information. But at this point, he didn't... He'd been kicked around so much. Like, after he left his folks, you know, after just a miserable, miserable existence and, and, and no salvation whatsoever. Nobody kind of coming to his corner. Nobody kind of holding out any kind of hope for this, this guy that was just kind of had a bad complexion and a drinking problem. You know, you got nowhere to go. You got nothing to lose. So fuck it. But as at the same time, he was saying, I don't care. I don't care what happens. I'm not going to try. Well, when he was also offered this setup, he was scared because he, it had always been in him. The writing had always been in him. He wanted to be a writer. And now he had the opportunity. To, he just, by, by, by luck, he'd found the right fit and the right situation with a small press and uh one month after he quit his job he had his first manuscript finished and it was about the post it was his first book post office which is about his his existence at the post office and the characters and the people and the drinking and but each it seems as though each book and each story and each subsequent novel and you know, even even after the popular, because it, immediately he starts he started selling books. I mean, right out the gate, he sold. I mean, post office sold something like fifty thousand copies in the first year or so, which is just ridiculous. Just, uh, but things just kind of came together. People, I think, you know, the people that were reading him again were the blue collar types, the working man, the guy that did work. You know, because. I mean, Kerouac sold a lot of copies of On the Road, but it was probably for, I don't know. I mean, there was a big, I, I would have to say there's probably a conver, or a divergence at that point because Kerouac, let's see, when did On the Road came out in like 57? Is that right? Yeah. And so... And then Bukowski's first book came out in 70. So it was kind of on the, I don't know. So On the Road kind of appealed to all these types that were just mm, hitchhiking across the U.S., kind of didn't buy into the whole, you know, start a family, buy a home, get a job get a bunch of appliances, watch TV, watch the latest show, acquire a bunch of shows, 
talk to your neighbor who had the best lawn, who could cut their grass in a nicer fashion, who could upgrade their TV set, all that nonsense, all that fucking consumerist crap. Well, that was the people. The people that were revolting against that were the ones that started reading On the Road. And then the people that decided, well, I don't know, growing a goatee and wearing a beret and playing bongos at a coffee joint in Greenwich Village only went so far. At some point, you got to kind of, you got to pay the bills too. So those people started washing dishes and they started taking weird jobs and probably getting into the grittiness of being a dishwasher or being a garbage collector or a mailman or whatever. And so those are the people that then probably decided, you know, I'm not the smartest guy in the world, but I get this guy. I get it. I get him, you know? You know, Martin Luther King had just been shot. Kennedy was shot. You know, all the kind of like, at that point, you know, in the 60s, there was like this, there was like this kind of this swelling of culture that started to build and people got excited about it and things started happening and Woodstock happened and all this excitement and this counterculture and this, you know, you don't have to be an old fuddy dud and you don't have to, you don't have to go live in some suburban neighborhood and drive to some job that is just mind numbing and be part of this rat race. You know, you, they saw this change starting to happen but then it all kind of screeched to a halt August 9th 1969 on Cielo Drive when Manson the Manson family murdered all those people Hunter Thompson wrote about it in Fear and Loathing in Las Vegas when the wave broke you could see where the high water mark happened against the wall there against the side side of the wall where the wave broke and it and it retracted and so by 70, 72, 73, well, now we're back to kind of where we started. Ugh, we got Nixon in the White House. Fucking life sucks. So you start having a drink or two. You kind of reminisce about the old days when you're reading Jack Kerouac and the Beat Poets and Allen Ginsberg. And then this along comes this dirtbag Bukowski who starts writing about how shitty he is with women and how shitty a person he is. And uh, he doesn't have any confidence, but he doesn't need any confidence because he doesn't need people and he doesn't need the banality of that nine-to-five job, that eight-to-five job, or, you know, paying on a house note or, or just trying to find small talk to make with your neighbor as you're standing out there watering your lawns. It's the most bullshit thing you could do and uh this guy comes out and i get and so it's it's these guys that are reading him it's not the scholars it wasn't the scholars but the scholars probably latched onto it at some point and they're like what is up with this guy so they start picking it apart 
but like I say, he's just he's just throwing a he's he's throwing a a fastball every pitch. He's like Sandy Koufax. He's just throwing it right down the middle. You just can't hit it. You don't get it. But it's fascinating stuff. Um, I think if you read, I don't know, if you read one Bukowski book, you probably you you're not going to be. I don't know. There isn't much. There isn't much else to. There, there aren't too many other directions to go. This guy, he, uh, you know, he just wanted to be left alone. He just wanted to write. He, uh, he didn't care about the stock market. He didn't care about the latest Ford that came out. He just wanted his his own little existence in L.A. and. Uh, and the women that just came in and out of his life is just like uh, the seasoning. It's like he's kind of a he's kind of a dirtbag. He is a dirtbag, but he makes no qualms about it. He doesn't uh, trumpet it. He doesn't beat his chest about it. He doesn't glorify it, and he doesn't uh, he doesn't sensationalize it. He doesn't try to win you over. Matter of fact, he, I think he just kind of keeps the reader at length. He kind of like, this is what it is. He's, women in, in essence, the book itself is him kind of riding his own coattails of success. At this point now, he's become kind of like America's poet. And he goes to his readings and he runs into these crazy women and you don't quite get, I don't know. It's both kind of like you feel bad for the women, but it's also kind of an indictment of the women because the women, they're these young women that now kind of come out of the woodwork at his readings while he's reading his poetry, wherever he's at, if it's in New York or if it's in Houston and they're just like uh, celebrity fuckers, but they're kind of like low rent celebrity fuckers because they know about them and they just want to bang the guy because 20 years before, 10 years before that, they wouldn't have walked across the street to spit on the guy and now they want to fuck him. So women is like, it's, it's as direct as the title itself, just women. And there are some, some nasty parts. It's very visceral. You know, he, 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 he doesn't pull any punches. He doesn't expect you to read between the lines because there's none to read between, but he's very, it's a very visceral read talking about squeezing his, you know, these women that are squeezing the blackheads on his back and, you know, these women with milky discharges and, you know, and putting Vaseline on his dick so he can stick it in this woman's butthole. I mean, that's his life, man. That's his life. I mean, it's what you make of it. And this is, like I say, in essence, this is a guy that's just reacting. He's just reacting because all these people wouldn't give him the time of day for pretty much the first 50 years of his life. And now he's like, well, can you just let me be? Can you just leave me alone? Like... But I, 
I say that, but at the same time, too, the the <laughs> part of one of the docs that I was watching because Bukowski was no dummy either. He understood celebrity, and he exploited that as well. Not to the point where it's like again, not to the point where it like where it, he felt like you know his work was some grand riddle or some huge epic piece of literature it was just what he wrote and so he he could crank it out though like like there was no um, there was no pre again no pretense that's what it was there's no pretense you kind of knew what you're getting so in the doc that I was watching there was uh, sections of of it where see one of these guys when and it was uh, Sean Penn actually of all people who um of all, you know, I mean, naturally, he he would be the guy to kind of, kind of curate the celebrity of Bukowski. You know, Sean Penn seems like the type of guy that would really uh, be fascinated by the Skid Row antics of a dirtbag like Bukowski. So he talked about the time that he invited him over to a party of his that he was having, and Bukowski, being who he is. Bukowski the fuck out of this and went in he said uh he went in and was kind of socially awkward but he ultimately just went to his go-to and he started drinking and then he started dancing and then he started making an ass out of himself then he grabbed Sean Penn's mom who happened to be there and Sean Penn whose mom he said he said his, his mom being of Italian and Irish heritage played right along drinking alongside him and dancing and Bukowski didn't give a fuck and in the dance floor he started trying to take his mom's clothes off and shit like that and then it just kind of it got out of control and then he moved on to the next kind of uh little um, pocket of dark energy and uh kind of got real I don't know dirt baggish and did a you know did his Bukowski thing, and then he bounced. He said, all right, it's been a great party. I'm out of here. And that's who you get. I mean, leave it to these fucking scholars and these PhDs and these guys that are working under fellowships and grants to start picking this stuff apart. That's for other people, you know, but he is uh, is what you, you know, you... (laughs) It's a. It's hard to wrap your brain around, because it's. It's so simple. It's like a put on. Like you think, like this is almost like a put on. Can this really be happening? You know, he talks about in chapter twenty eight of women. He's talking about this girl Mindy who breaks out in a fight with this girl, his girlfriend Lydia. Lydia pisses herself, wets her pants. She ends up ultimately uh, taking all of his books and his art and his typewriter and starts chucking them 
through the windows of his little bungalow that he's got in um, in L.A. that he's living in. And uh, that's that's kind of like par for the course in the life of Bukowski. I mean, despite the fact that he's really just trying to avoid people in general, he can't help but step in it all the time. I guess that would be the essence of a Bukowski book is as hard as he tries to avoid these people, they just keep working their way into his working their way into his tattered and awful train wreck of a life. So So that's what I get for reading Bukowski. Anyway, I don't know. Maybe a lot of the stuff is kind of old hat, you know? Maybe there's new versions of dirt... There's got to be new versions of dirt bags. I mean, if you look at books like Train Spotting and stuff like that, that's a great book. Now, that's a fucking... I don't know. His his style, like, if you... You know, you talk about those types of people that live in that existence. It's just like... It's the seamy underbelly. It's like I was talking about earlier with Americana and these, you know, people that seek out the underbelly of life. People like Anthony Bourdain, people that write about it, like, you know, people that, it seems like a natural setting, you know, Tom Waits comes to mind, you know. Talking about the, it's the language of the streets, the music of the streets. It's those, it's kind of the celebration of the streets. And and but with Bukowski, it was kind of like natural. You know, it was just who he was. And uh, I don't know to to really give it a bigger voice than it has is really that's 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 too pretentious. That's giving him too much credit, but. But there's something there. There's definitely something there, and uh, so that's my uh, that's my foray into old Charles Bukowski, and uh, pretty interesting stuff. Pretty interesting guy. Pretty dark story. But ultimately, in the end, you just kind of feel bad for the guy, and maybe that's maybe that's ultimately what hmm, what keeps his readership coming is like, you feel, you feel pity for the, you know, as, as big a dirt bag as this guy is, you sympathize with him. I mean, everything he touches, everything he does, every, every move he makes is just, it's kind of self-serving and gross and dirty and ravaged with drink and cigarette butts and trash and you know, but he is, uh, he is very authentic and it's that authenticity that gives way to kind of like your pity. you start thinking, well, this is his life and, uh, you can't fault him for that. So I don't know. I don't know. That's it. That's the, uh, that's the podcast for today, boys and girls, moms and dads. And uh wasn't trying to inspire you to read Bukowski, but if you get a chance, pick up a book. I mean, he's been talked about 
by bands, by Modest Mouse, and songs, movies, Barfly. Um, he's been eulogized in every type of art form, and he's just, uh, he's the equivalent of like a fucking rock that's stuck in the tread of your tire. You just kind of, he's, you know, he's just kind of wedged in there and he just keeps making that awful clack kind of repetitive noise, but you know what you're going to get every time, you know? So that's it. That's the end. And I'll talk at you later. Arrivederci, babies.